November is National Veterans and Military Families Month, a time to express our gratitude for the service of our nation's veterans and military families. The theme for Veterans Day, November 11th, is honor. In recognition of these observances, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's Service Members, Veterans, and Their Families Technical Assistance Center, commonly known as the SMBFTA Center, is reflecting on that theme of honor and the work that they do each day serving our nation's service members, veterans, and their families. The SMBFTA Center is proud to represent a wide diversity of military experience. It's staffed with veterans from the Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, and Navy, and military family members from the Coast Guard. The diversity of the SMBFTA Center's military experience, encompassing age, gender, period of service, deployment type, and more, is key to our success when working across the country. Today, we'll spend time with three members of our SMBFTA Center team, co-director Dwayne France, Project Associate Tish DeLeo, and Project Associate Chantel Boudreaux. We'll discuss their service, their family service, and the work they do today as part of the SMVFTA Center. Dwayne and Tish are both retired Army non-commissioned officers and combat veterans, and Chantel is a Navy veteran. My name is Holly Davis, Communications Director of Policy Research Associates, which operates the SMVFTA Center, and I will moderate our discussion today. So let's begin with some background on our three guests, their military service, and their roles at the SMVFTA Center. Dwayne, let's start with you. Can you tell us a bit about your service and your work today? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for having us, Holly. Really appreciate the opportunity to share. So I retired from the United States Army in 2014 after 22 years. And so I joined the military probably about a week out of high school in 1992. And we'll talk a little bit about how I came into the military here in a bit related to my family connections. But really, that was post Gulf War and there wasn't really anything going on. So at that point, I was really just looking for money from college and not sleeping in my dad's basement, basically. So I spent some time in Germany. My first tour of duty was in Germany for three years. I spent three years with the 82nd Airborne Division, went back to Germany, and I was in Germany on 9-11. And I think that's one unique thing for the careerists of us in that we split our time in the military pre-9-11 and post-9-11. So then after 9-11, spent some time on recruiting duty, but then was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, where I did the grand tour of one Iraq, two Afghanistans, North Africa, there at the end of my career with 10 Special Forces Group. And so after I retired, I became a clinical mental health counselor for veterans. And that's also part of the larger story and related to my family's history and legacy of service, but really wanted to support the mental health and wellness of current era veterans and started getting involved in coalition building, specifically around suicide prevention for service members, veterans, and their families, was part of the governor's challenge here in Colorado when it was one of the first states, which is how I was first introduced to PRA and the SMVFTA Center. And then the opportunity came for me to join the SMVFTA Center. And so now I serve as co-director, along with my colleague, Terry, to be able to lead the team that's really establishing these suicide prevention coalitions in states, territories, and communities around the country. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dwayne. Tish, how about you? It's kind of funny because a lot of what Dwayne said could almost be applied directly to my story. Um, so I retired from the Army in 2010. And so I joined right before the Gulf War the first Gulf War and really was excited to go. But as a new food inspector, they were like, we need to send seasoned people. So I didn't deploy in the Gulf War. I did spend most of my time in the military as a single parent. 
And so with that came its own set of challenges. I absolutely loved being in the military, really almost a week to the day after I graduated high school. That was what I was doing. I knew when I was in high school that I was going to join the military, partly to get out of the little small town in central Alabama where I grew up to just expand my horizons and see the world. Literally, those recruiting commercials really spoke to me. Um, It did take me about 12 years before I was able to deploy. And I have mixed feelings about that. I actually volunteered for that deployment, knowing that by volunteering, it would help me in career progression. It it was a long period of time between my promotions. And as a single parent, every dollar mattered. And so it was about, okay, what can I do to really set myself apart from my peers? So when Iraq kicked off in 2003, I volunteered to go. And sure enough, as soon as it was time for the rating and the promotions came out, I was like number one on the list because I had seniority and time and service. And so that was an experience into itself. I retired here in San Antonio, which is where I live. And I was the senior instructor at a med center in school for the veterinary services branch. It was there that I found that I really enjoyed teaching, that I really enjoyed conveying information to a group of people and they got it. Like, and I enhanced their performance because they learned something from what I had to teach them. So what did get me excited was the concept of continuing to take care of soldiers, which is what I kind of feel I have been doing since I retired in 2010. My primary focus, though, has been in peer support. Um, In Texas, we have something called the Military Veteran Peer Network, and I'm proud to be one of the of the handful of people who kicked that off the ground and have that going in the great state of Texas. So that's where I really see that my focus has been and where my passion is in that peer support. I too was part of the governor's challenge for Texas. And so as things changed in the landscape of Texas government, there was an opportunity presented for me to go from government, from working for Texas Veterans Commission, to the TA center. What I was thinking and what got me so excited was how could I take what I learned in Texas and help to apply what could work in other states across the nation? And that's truly been an amazing journey for now almost three years with the SMVF TA center. That's fantastic. I'm hearing a lot of themes of adventure, honor, personal growth from you two and Chantal, I'd love to hear how that extends to you as well. So I actually joined a little bit later in life. I joined at 25. Really serving in the military wasn't really as big a thing for my family. My grandpa, um, you know, he served in World War II. Um, We never really heard him talk much about it, but that was pretty much the extent of uh, the military um, family when I, before I had joined. So I was told, you know, the traditional route is you go to college when you finish high school. But I had the mentality of really, when is all of this school going to end? When do I actually get to live my life? Uh, So I decided I was going to go to Europe and I lived in Austria for a few years. But then eventually I was like, yeah, so I should probably figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And the Navy just seemed like a really great option to 
Number one, avoid combat, because I, I will admit that I was not really one to want to go into combat. But also there's some great benefits that come with serving in the military, such as being able to have your education paid for, which is definitely a big incentive for why I wanted to join so that I could kind of, you know, make that future for me that I was ready to do. Um, so I actually had to fly to the U.S., and the day I flew in, I went into the station and signed the paperwork that I wanted to join, did the test. Um, my first enlistment was in Japan in Naval Air Facility Itsugi. And I worked on F-18 jets there. And then my second enlistment was Anderson Air Force Base, where I worked on helicopters. I'll definitely say that while I'm very happy for all the benefits that came with serving and the way that I was able to grow as a person, there were definitely some frustrations and some things where when I got out of the military, I was like, I don't want anything to do with the military. To rebel, I dyed my hair like blue and purple. And I was like, I'm going to get a degree in sociology because that has absolutely nothing to do with being a mechanic. And I don't want to talk to people who serve. Um, but over the years... <laughs> And kind of going through my own transitional struggles and in studying sociology, I was able to really kind of understand that I was not alone with a lot of the problems and that a lot of people actually shared some of the similarities um, and struggles that I shared. And so that really struck an interest in me and being able to really understand that better and to be able to help people to better the way that things are going for them when they get out and have that better transition I actually had a person in one of my classes who worked at the SMVFTA center and who told me about this job that he does. And I was like, that's what I need to do. I want to work there. They weren't even hiring. I remember writing in like a letter and a few months later I got a call. So I was very excited about that when I was able to, they called me in and I got a job at the SMVFTA center. It's definitely a joy to be able to do work that you're passionate about and that you enjoy. You know, it's great to go to work and feel like you're making a difference and just seeing the teams grow and seeing all the work that's happening. And also being able to work with such a wonderful team of passionate people also. It's just, um, it's it's really great. That's fantastic. I love how you turned your own kind of transitional struggles into a career of helping others and smoothing that process for folks exiting the military and going back into civilian life. All right. So thank you all so much for that background. You've had a lot of differing experience, a lot of overlap, a lot of differences though. And I'm curious how those experiences would inform my next question. What does honor mean to you in the context of your military service? So Chantal, why don't you start us off? So I would say to start, just being able to be a woman that served in the United States Navy, I'm very like honored and very proud to be able to say that. Um, and then also, I mean, to say that I was an airframe mechanic in the Navy, I feel like that sounds great. I will say that when it comes to honor, to start, I had a little trouble because when I originally, you know, when I think of honor, I think of, you know, people who, who gave it all, um, people who went to combat, those real heroes. But when you think about it, there's a lot of people who do a lot of honorable things within the military. I kind of took a step back and I thought about both of my enlistments were very, very different. So to start, my enlistment in Japan was, I will say, I, it was a very toxic work center. 
very toxic workplace, very toxic environment. And I had a lot of trouble in there. I guess to give an idea of just how bad it was, there were nights where I literally laid in my rack to go to bed and wish that I wouldn't wake up. Like to give you an idea of what I was dealing with. On the ship, you can't escape. There's nowhere to go to talk to someone. There's nowhere to be alone. It can be very hard. So for me, I feel like even in this toxic environment, there were some real gems. There were people who really stood up for me. And so to me, those people are like the real heroes that I want to honor. The people that really helped me get through that enlistment. And they helped me get out of that toxic work center and moved into a new work center. I was able to really thrive and show that, yeah, I can do great. And here I am. I just, you know, had to get out of that horrible, horrible environment. So I had actually planned on getting out of the military. And I remember going upstairs to sign the paperwork to get out. And I saw there was orders to Guam. And my most positive memories when I was stationed in Japan were when I deployed to Guam. So I was like, well, what's another two years? Um, and I'm really <laughs> glad I re-enlisted. I would say every command is different. And it was like black and white between the commands. The second one was wonderful. A lot of really great people. I got to become that person that was in a supervisor role. And I made it a goal that I was not going to allow those toxic people to affect how I led my team. And I wanted to be that honorable person, that gem that stood up for my people. And sometimes it was tough, but I was very proud to be the one that really you know, stood up for them and improved the work environment. So I'm honored that I had the privilege of being able to take on a leadership role. And I like to think I did a good job and that I helped others and hopefully helped them in their futures and in their paths. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's really, really powerful. And those themes of personal integrity, service to others, that's so resonant with, I think, so many folks. Tish, what about you? Yeah, you know, um, this one was kind of hard for me to kind of narrow it down. I, from the very beginning of my service, it was like I always wanted to ensure that I was honoring those that went before me. Like I just grew up in a family that really appreciated tradition and history. And so for me, it was like, I just felt this real heavy, almost a heavy burden of, you know, making sure that I was serving with honor. As, you know, my career progressed and as a single parent, it made me start thinking about um, before 1979, when women were pregnant, they were forcefully involuntarily separated from the military. And there was no concessions for being joint military, you know, both spouses being active duty. Um, I just felt that I had to honor those women who sacrificed so much, who wanted to serve, who wanted to be a lifer, if you will, who really <clears throat> had something to offer to the military in great passion and skill and were not afforded that opportunity. So I just, I wanted to make my family proud, you know, and so it serving honorably was just a part of that. Honor the sacrifices that my family made for me being able to serve. All of those things were very important to me. 
And I think now I hear people say, well, I don't know how you did it. And the only thing I can say to them is you never know what you can do until you have to. And for me, it wasn't just that this sense that I wanted to serve to be honorable. The other side, that flip side of that was it was literally how I provided for my family. Mm -hmm. So not only did I have like this feeling of wanting to make people proud of me, but I could not screw it up because this is how I put food on the table. This is how the light stayed on. This is how my kids had a bed to sleep in. And so that was a big part of my service and always in the back of my mind. And I feel like I really led that way. Even now I've been retired for many years, 12 years. And I have soldiers that will reach back out to me. One who just got picked up for command sergeant major. And she says, you know, the way that you led gave me the opportunity to think outside of myself. And I started serving for others. And in that, that's how she made it to this rank because she was serving for more than just her reasons, her own education, her own promotions. And when she stepped outside of that, it gave her the opportunity to just really bloom. And I'm very thankful for the soldiers who reach out and say, you know, thank you for being the leader that you were because it helped me in my career. And to me, that is honor, you know, like they're, I honored them in serving them that way. And now they're honoring me by reaching back out and saying you are an integral part of, you know, how I serve today. That's fantastic. And then you're kind of carrying on that tradition of service to others. Thanks so much, Tish. Dwayne, how about you? How does honor intersect in the, with the context of your military service? You know, I, I think about the word honor and really you, you heard, I think both Chantel and Tish talk about them in different ways. You know, honor can be a verb like, you know, an action. I'm honoring someone else. Um, but really I, I see as an internal value um, and, and Tish very likely remembers this is the army has in all of the services have these, but they have professed or stated values and honor is one of the army's values, loyalty, duty, respect, honor, integrity, personal courage, selfless service. That wasn't always that way. I remember it was like probably the late 90s or the early 2000s when like the army put that out. It's the first time I actually found that somebody was putting my internal values into words. Really, the honor part of the army values is living up to all of the army's values to provide that honorable service that, that Tish was talking about to be honored, to be able to serve as Chantel was talking about. And so I think that when a lot of people think about honor, they think about the tomb of the unknown soldiers, or they think about supporting the service of veterans. Right now, a group of veterans from my local community are on an honor flight to Washington, D.C. This is where they take veterans from previous conflicts and fly them, all expenses paid, to Washington, D.C. so that they might be able to visit the memorials. The honor flight, that is a flight to honor their service, but it also gives them an opportunity to honor those they served with, right? So honor can be done in so many different ways. I honor the service of, of those that I served with through my continued service. And I honor the service of the people who I lost through, you know, through a memorial bracelet or through a remembrance on the day that we lost them. Um, so I think the military is an honorable profession. It's not an, always an easy profession and not everybody lives up to the values. Just because you're a service member doesn't mean that you're an angel. Trust me, you know, that doesn't happen. But I think the 
really the hope, the core is that we serve honorably and that we are honored to serve. Thank you three so much for those reflections. And also thank you for your service. We're very grateful to have your experience and your expertise at the SMVFTA Center. And I just, I love having this diversity of perspective and, and life experience that you're all bringing to the work that we're doing. So we know that military service extends far beyond the person who is serving. And I'd like to talk about that theme of honor in the context of your military families. And I'd like to start with you, Tish, because from your story, it just sounds like you were such a trailblazer for women. And I'd love to hear more about what that was like of being an active duty mother, a mother to young children. Can you share a bit more about that? Absolutely. And Holly, I have to say, you know, that there were many women who in every service did what they had to do to take care of their families. I can tell you that unfortunately in my career, it was really predominantly a male dominated area. And I really didn't have those examples around me. So I'm, I just really feel proud to be able to have served in that capacity for others. Uh, I was either a dual military service member or a single parent while I was in the military. There were sacrifices on my end where my child was born. I had to go back to work. You didn't have an extended parental leave time. And so literally 60 days after having a child, I'm back at work. I was back on duty with no restrictions. And so that meant that going TDY or deploying or all of those kinds of things were back on the table, no matter if I had a young child at home or not. I missed first steps for both of my children. I did not see their very first steps. Potty training. I did not potty train either one of my children, which some parents would argue is a good thing. And I get that. But all of the cute little things that go into that, like I missed that. When my daughter was 15 and she became a woman, I was not there for her. Like I really missed a lot of, of those types of things. And there's guilt associated with not necessarily how it affected me, but then let's turn it around and how that affected my children. So the bonding that happens between an infant and a mother or an infant and their parents that was really stretched, especially with my second daughter. Uh, she and I did not bond in the way that my first daughter and I did. That feeling of being abandoned is something that she struggled with her whole life. My older daughter, she really hated me for a lot of years because all of the people that she met went to kindergarten with the same person that they graduated high school with. She cannot say that. She has really no high school friends. She doesn't have a confidant. She doesn't have that person that she can say, remember when we broke our arm on the swing set? Like she just doesn't have that. And even to the point when she got married a couple years ago, I don't even know who to ask to be my maid of honor. And that was like, it really hit me hard. Like it really was hard for me to deal with. So she really was very resentful for that. Uh, now she's a grown woman. She's 30 years old, has a great career. She can meet anyone and she just strikes up a conversation. She does not meet a stranger. She has the confidence that people way older than her do not have. She just walks into a room. She makes an assessment. She knows what she's going to do. She's just so confident 
And she, you know, attributes that to moving every so many years and having to meet new teachers and new people and changing environments and also having to grow up very quickly. She is seven years older than my younger daughter. And for many years, she was more of a partner to me than she was like a daughter. Because when I go to PT, I would not get both the girls up that early. So she was there with the smaller child. And as she got older, she would wash clothes. She would start dinner. She didn't have the opportunity to be the child and the young adolescent and adult. And those are things that I think a lot of folks take for granted. And I can only imagine that my brothers in arms feel this too. They miss those first steps. They miss these things, these developmental things that happen in their children's lives. And it can be, it can be something that has a lasting effect on the service member and veteran in thinking, you know, was it worth it? Was what I did worth what, what now my children are going through, my family went through, is it worth it? And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I struggle with that. Even now through many, many hours of talk therapy and, and reasoning and praying and forgiveness and all of those things, I have a second chance. So I am a new grandma and in being a new grandma, I get to see those things. Like, you know, I'm watching my granddaughter grow up before my eyes and it's such a blessing and I'm not taking that for granted. It's not that I can make it up from missing that for my children, but it sure is nice to (laughs) see and be a part of my granddaughter's life now. It's really a blessing. It's a very weighty thing, but you've given both girls this incredible amount of resilience and strength, like the role modeling that you've done for them over their lives of showing how strong and how perseverant you can be. It's very meaningful. Absolutely. Dwayne, let's let's shift it over to you. You're a military parent as well. Yes, absolutely. The the sacrifices that our family makes in a number of different ways is significant. When I started to deploy in Iraq in 2006, uh, my children were in kindergarten and first grade. And then when I finally stopped deploying, there wasn't a year between 2006 and 2013 that I wasn't gone for all uh, or at least part of the year. And they were approaching high school by the time that that I had finished deploying. I think when I think about the family context of service, I think a different generation. I often say that, as many of us do, we come from a military lineage. Two of my three grandfathers served in World War II. My father, three of his brothers served in Vietnam. And then I and my brother served in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And when we When I say that, people automatically think that, oh, you come from the military lineage and stuff like that, but that's not really the case. I didn't realize that that either of my grandfathers served in World War II until much later. Like I had been in the army for 10 or 15 years before either of them mentioned even that they were, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. I went back to my grandfather's to visit and everybody was there. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody leaves and it's just me and him in the living room. And he was like, oh, you're jumping out of airplanes, huh? Uh, and I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I jumped out of airplanes once. And I'm like, what? And he was like, yeah. And then he starts telling me the story about him and some buddies in France changing road signs and stuff like that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, you were he, he jumped into D-Day. And none of us knew. Like, he never talked about it, never mentioned it. 
and then going to my father's service in Vietnam, as I mentioned, him and three of his brothers on that side of the family all served. But all that had been done by the time I came along. I didn't grow up as a military brat. My father served a good five or six years before I was born. And so I really saw the aftermath of growing up as the son of a Vietnam veteran and the nephew of Vietnam veterans in the 80s and 90s. And it wasn't pretty. It was not pleasant. One of the only times that my mother asked my father to speak to me and give me life advice was to try to keep me from joining the military. That really my father was like, specifically what he said is, you're too smart to join the military. You need to figure something else out. And so I, I think that while I'm proud of my family's service and honor their service, it's very complicated. The service is complicated, even to the point then of later on, I was actually leaving Iraq and my older sister, our younger half brother at that point had called her and said she was joining the military. And I'm like, don't do anything until I get off this plane. And it was probably a week between when I was leaving Iraq. And I recall very clearly, we were on a Chinook and this was the day that I was leaving Iraq. And I remember lifting off and watching Baghdad below me and we were going to get ready to deploy out of country. And I'm thinking, man, now my younger brother is about to come into this. And what does that mean? And how do I deal with that? Because the whole reason why I serve is so that others don't have to. And yeah, it turned out that he actually, he enlisted, he went to basic training. He ended up in the same region as I did. He and I served in Afghanistan at the same time. Uh, my father and two of his three brothers all overlapped in Vietnam at the same time. And they tell this story of how one of his brothers stole a Jeep, came to my dad's base and went to go meet the third brother when he came into country in Vietnam. And sort of family legacy, I was on my second deployment to Afghanistan and I was able to catch a flight. I didn't steal a chopper, but I was able to catch a flight down to my brother's base and spend the day with him in country in, v in Afghanistan. Uh, and so I, I think there's this multi-layered aspect of military service when it comes to family and extended family. For me, generationally, for my father, my grandfather's generations, and mine and my brother's service, which my, my brother's children are much, much younger than mine, but I'm not necessarily encouraging my children to join the military. I'm not discouraging from it. If that's a choice that they would like to make, we'd have that conversation. But it's not something that I'm actively encouraging them to serve because in, in many ways I feel like I served so they didn't have to. Thank you. It's interesting that you say uh, this kind of familial line of service. My stepfather served in the army. His brother served in the Navy. His other brother served in the Coast Guard. No one else has served. We don't talk about the service at all. It was something that happened. It's funny how people relate to their service after, after they've exited. Chantel, I know you have a lot of kind of contemporaries or like cousins who serve. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with honor and military families and how those two relate? As I had mentioned earlier, I don't really have the whole long lineage. I have my grandpa who served in World War II, but that was about it for a while. I believe I was the next one in my family to join. So I joined the Navy. Um, shortly after joining the Navy, my brother-in-law joined the Army. A few years after that, I have a cousin that joined the Marines. Through the experiences of my nieces and nephews, I've gotten a bit of a taste of some of the obstacles that military children go through and the families go through with constantly transitioning, constantly changing schools, 
And so it, it's very, very frustrating for them because it's hard to really plan ahead and kind of think about the future and really be focused and, you know, have those friends that you have kind of like Tish talked about that you're with the long way. Uh, another thing, though, that I'm very proud of is that my oldest niece joined the Army um, and she's currently serving at Fort Hood in Texas. And I'm very, very proud of her. Um, she followed in her father's footsteps doing the same type of work. But it's also, it's, it's nice sometimes she reaches out to me to kind of get that perspective of a woman who served. And so I feel really honored and proud to be able to help her and support her. As Tish was mentioning, that in some way, some of this stuff is actually helping them to be strong um, and independent. And in some ways... Hopefully they can grow from this and use some of those obstacles to their advantage in the, the future. Thank you, Chantel. And thank you three so much for being so open. It's been very, very eye-opening and just very moving hearing all your perspectives. So families are a very integral part of the military, and I'm very glad that we've been able to honor their service and sacrifice with this discussion. So let's now focus on the work that you three are doing at the SMVF PA Center. What does honor mean in the context of working with interagency state and city teams to prevent and reduce suicide among SMVF? So uh, Dwayne, I'd love to hear your take on this. Yeah, I think that for me, this is a way to continue serving in a different way. I think that a lot of veterans, in my experience, both personally and as a clinician and as a leader to veterans now who I had served with as soldiers, there's a need to be able to have something to do that's meaningful in post-military life. When we served, we were doing what we loved and, you know, it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always great, but we found a place. And then we get out of the military and there's no place for us anymore, right? What, who we were is not who we're able to be. Basically, the military is such a cultural identity that it's like you can't be you anymore. And so you have to find a new you to be. And I think that the work at the SMVFTA Center is a way to continue that service in a very meaningful way. As it relates to, to suicide, we know that suicide is a significant issue in communities across the country, regardless of the, the military and veteran status. Um, but I often say that we as service members, veterans, military family members, we all have a number. And that number is people that we served with or people that we knew who served that we've lost to suicide. Going back to my family story, my first suicide intervention was with my Vietnam veteran father um, that that going on now 20 something years ago. Now, we had got notice. One of his friends had reached out to my sister. I was stationed in Germany at the time. And my sister reached out to me and said, we think something's going on. What do we do? And I called my father and I did what we're supposed to do is and I asked him directly, are you thinking about, you know, killing yourself? And he said, yes. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm in Germany. What, how do I manage this? How do I deal with this? But once we got over that and we were able to get him the care and the support that he needed and get him connected to the resources, that was a su successful suicide intervention that he ended up not dying by suicide. Very easily could have gone the other way. And I know that it has for many people. And I think that's really one of the keys that started me going down the mental health path. I knew I could never be a therapist for my father, but I'm in Iraq and I'm seeing young men and women experiencing the same thing that my father and his brothers experienced in Vietnam. And I said, we have a whole nother generation 
that we need to care for here, which is what caused me to go be a clinician, a therapist for veterans, and then now extending into this work in the SMV FTA Center. But really, the coalition is necessary. Suicide's not the problem to be solved. Suicide's a lagging indicator of other underlying unresolved problems. Things like unemployment, things like family concerns, things like substance abuse, addiction, mental health, all of these different things. And there's no one solution and there's no one organization that is going to apply that one solution. It's going to take this coalition. And I think that's really what we're helping states and territories and communities do is build a coalition that is able to respond to whatever the need is that's causing that crisis, not to stop suicide, but to make lives better so that suicide isn't an option. Thanks so much, Dwayne. Tish, how about you? Does that uh, continuing to serve uh, theme resonate with you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as being a senior NCO, it's for me, you know, it's, it's still taking care of soldiers, even if they're, you know, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, whatever. I just kind of just like, I'm still taking care of soldiers. And that is like very meaningful to me. That gives me purpose. You know, PTSD is real and you don't have to be an infantryman to have PTSD. We know that trauma happens in life and trauma happens to everyone. And for me, it just so happens that the trauma that I experienced while I was deployed, I carry with me every day. And so I know that part of what keeps me in a safe space is my peers. And that's really why peer support is so important to me. In the work that we do at the SMV FTA Center, I think it is, it's life-changing. It's life-saving. And um, I feel really honored to be in a position to share my story, to give a face to that, so that people who have never experienced these situations in the military can have an understanding of why it's important to do some of the things that we talk about with the states, like carrying contacts after you've been hospitalized or after you've had um, some significant crisis, being able to reach out and say, okay, you're over the critical point here, but we want you to know that we're still here for you, that there's still a community that's here for you. I think that putting that face to the issue is important for people who have tons of letters behind their names, but maybe don't have the same life experience. And so I'm hoping that through the work that we're doing, we can collectively voice our concerns as peers and then collectively find those solutions in our communities to address the issues that Dwayne was talking about. Transition is not easy for everyone, but let's be clear. Some people transition very well. But there are many of us who do not transition well. Um, many of us who have struggles with identity. I joined right after high school. The military was my life. Once I took that uniform off, the same level of respect that I had before is not the same level of respect that I had without that uniform. And I had significant emotional issues with that. So that transition is not easy for everyone. And then like finding your purpose, finding a new career. You know, if you join right after high school, you're going to be retired by the time you're 38, 39, 40 years old. That's way too young to retire. And your retirement checks should, is not going to really sustain you anyway. So you're going to need to have a job. It's hard to find a job when your job is just this niche within the military. And so I really feel like 
these and so many other issues, we talk about that. We talk about the social determinants of health. We talk about how it takes a community to support our families. It takes a community to serve a transitioning service member. And I just, you know, I'm so proud of that work. I'm so proud of the people that I get to work with, the state leaders who are willing to hear stories, to hear interventions, to hear what best practices are, and then take the chance to actually put some skin in the game to to implement these interventions. It's amazing. And I really applaud the work of these states for for really saying, okay, we're going to do this. This is what we're going to do and really get committed. That is really powerful. Thank you, Tish. Chantel, how about you? Can you talk about honor and your work at the SMVFTA Center? Uh, yeah. So one of the things that Tish was mentioning earlier about transition is that for some people it is easy, uh, you know, or it seems seamless. And for other people, there's a lot of hurdles. And it seems like, you know, even if you're really planned, there can be things that come up that you don't even think about. Just to kind of give one small experience, like we already feeling like you don't fit in and then going to college and being a 30 year old with a bunch of like 18 and 19 year olds doesn't help you feel like you're fitting in at all. So like little things like that, trying to find your place, it can be frustrating. You assume that we're knowledgeable on a lot of financial stuff that was kind of taken care of for us. And you'll find that a lot of people get out and they end up in these financial predicaments. And so just having people to really guide us and support us and, you know, asking questions like, how are you? Because And asking constantly about our feelings. Because I'll say that when I first got out, I had a really hard time understanding what was a feeling and just what was me telling a story of what happened. I just could not put out what my feelings were, I guess is a good way to phrase it. So doing the work with the teams, when we do like identifying and screening, it's really important that we're consistently doing that because someone might not speak up the first time. Um, So making it repetitive, making it normal. One of the things that we do often when we work with teams is we ask people, what's your why? And oftentimes they'll tell us, you know, about a loved one who maybe they died by suicide or talking about a personal experience or just the work that they do and the passion they have or family members. There's always reasons for the why. There's always reasons for that passion behind the work that, that really keeps those teams going. A lot of the people on the teams that we work with, they don't get paid to do this work. They do this because it's important and because they care and they understand that, you know, the transition for a veteran is very difficult and having these supports can save lives. And that's, that's why they're there. That's why they're meeting and doing all of this work. Um, And we're there to be able to support them in getting this done. And so it's just really a great honor to be able to help support them in doing this work so that we can save lives. Thank you. I think Dwayne was the one who said that uh, the work of the TA Center is life-changing, life-saving work. So we're reaching the end of our time today. Before we wrap it up, does anyone have any last comments that they'd like to share as we reflect on National Veterans and Military Families Month, Veterans Day, or the theme of honor, or just any last thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah. So I just want to say that it's really important to let people know that their service matters. 
And that every position matters. Every cog in the wheel matters. You know, sometimes people think like, oh, well, I just cleaned, you know, the birthings or I just cooked meals, but you're making food that's keeping people going and helping them do the mission. You're keeping the space clean so people aren't getting ill. Like everyone has an important role. Don't demean what you did. You did something important. Even for me, I have a hard time with feeling like my service mattered. And so this was really a really eye-opening project for me because I'll be honest, when someone thanks me for my service, I get really nervous. At the end of the day, I think it's important to understand that they're letting us know that they appreciate what we did, the sacrifices that we made, no matter how big or small. Be proud, proud of your service and proud of those who serve. That was great. Thank you, Chantel. Tish, Dwayne, any last comments? Yeah, I I just want to piggyback on what Chantel said, because I think it is important. I know personally, I struggle when someone says, well, thank you for your service. For many years, I felt very uncomfortable with that. Like, what do I say? Why am I feeling this way? And so it's taken me some years, but now I am in a position where I just simply say, you were worth it. And it was my honor. The more that we as service people, either veterans or service members, respond in a way that is not like, oh, I don't know why you're thanking me the more people will say thank you for your service. I think because the person who's saying thank you for your service, they don't know what else to say, but they know that it's important to say something. So I just think that it's a two-way street in that. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to share just pieces of our stories. And I'm so grateful to Chantel and Dwayne for sharing. I think we need more opportunities to share our stories so that we can really appreciate where we come from and what our experiences are. And just as people appreciate that we're different and we're working for our one common goal. Excellent. Dwayne, final parting thoughts? I think continuing on that theme of being thanked or um, people expressing thankfulness for our service I recognize that wasn't always the case. Again, growing up as the son and nephew of Vietnam veterans, I recall in the mid-80s, the Vietnam Memorial wasn't built until the mid-80s, and the traveling wall came around, and my father and one of his brothers took me to the wall and then to a gathering afterwards. And this was a full 15, almost 20 years after their service that finally, and I recall very clearly my uncle saying, this is our welcome home. Again, they served in the height of the conflict in 67, 68, at least these two brothers did. And they didn't get welcome home, so to speak, until the mid 80s. They spent the 70s trying to pretend like they weren't veterans or forget or fight against the negative stereotypes that were happening. Um, and, And now we think about Korean War veterans who say that this is the forgotten war between World War II and Vietnam. Gulf War veterans feel very same about theirs is the forgotten war between Vietnam and the post 9-11 generation. And a lot of post 9-11 veterans sort of get a mix of the same, this adoration appreciation that they don't feel comfortable dealing with, or they feel ignored, or they feel despised. Um, And so I think there's a lot of complicated feelings around this appreciation of service. But I heartily support what Chantel is saying is every single individual mattered 
when it came to their military service. And the same thing is now in the work that we do, like every little bit helps. You don't have to be the person standing up on the stage doing plenary speech, talking about the latest and greatest suicide prevention efforts. Everybody who is doing anything to improve the lives of veterans and service members and their families is helping save lives. And I think that's really the concept is there's no Hall of Fame for suicide prevention. This is a collective effort, and I'm just really pleased to be able to be alongside Chantel Tish, the rest of the SMBFTA Center team, to be able to do this very important work. Excellent. It really does. It takes all of your stories, all of your willingness to work together and to build that coalition and build that community. So again, Dwayne, Tish, Chantel, thank you so much for your time today, for being so open about your services, your experience. Um, your reflections really do underscore how vital the work of the SMVFTA Center is in ensuring a smooth transition to civilian life. I'm beyond grateful for your commitment and your passion and your willingness to show up today. And again, thank you for your service. I'm so pleased to be able to work with you all. So to the veterans listening to this conversation, thank you for your service and your willingness to answer the call of duty. To our military families listening, thank you for your service and your resilience. To everyone, our nation is stronger because of you. So to learn more about the SMVFTA Center, visit samsa.gov forward slash SMVF dash TA dash center. SAMHSA is S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov forward slash SMVF dash TA dash C-E-N-T-E-R. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate your time. <laughs>